Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Star Line by the president of Mayo Clinic Labs, chair of lab medicine and pathology at the Mayo Clinic, a legend in radio circles. He's known as the big knocker, Dr. Bill Maurice. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Let's go beyond the mic. You started on a path of health at Indiana, where you studied biochem, got your MD and PhD in medicine and immunology at Mayo. Why was being a doctor so important to you? It's an interesting question. I, I, you know, my parents actually got married straight out of high school and then went to college when I was six, seven years old, and then they went on to get PhDs in psychology. So I grew up around students, raised by students that were studying, uh, you know, in the field of medicine and mental health. So that's really how I got interested in medicine, uh, was from them, and uh, probably also in being a lifelong learner. Then when I was in college, it, it just turned out that I had a real aptitude for chemistry and for science. And so I was really looking for a career that combined both. And, and honestly, that's how I ended up doing both the MD and the PhD degree it was by the end of college, I couldn't decide if I want to do more of a science career or a medical career. So then I just uh, delayed the decision and got two degrees and then went from there. I know you're a big sports fan. Recently, the Big Ten joined other conferences around the nation, canceling the fall sports season. The major factor was COVID-related myocarditis. Could you break down the fear of myocarditis and what it does to us, please? It's a very interesting and evolving topic with COVID in terms of its effect on the heart. And it's a little, I'm going to get a little technical here. So myocarditis is a term that refers specifically to inflammation of the heart, and which is something that can occur with viral infection and including COVID. Now, uh, it's pretty difficult to diagnose and make and determine if someone has inflammation of the heart. The most reliable way is actually to do a biopsy of the heart, which, believe it or not, can be done, or to, to evaluate the heart at autopsy. So we have known for a long time, really well, as long as we've had COVID, which isn't a long time, but for the last six months or so, that patients that have COVID-19 disease, when they get to the hospital, they have signs of stress of the heart. And, and the way that we look at that is to actually do a blood test and look for the same blood test that we do to evaluate for a heart attack we can use to evaluate to see if the heart is stressed because the heart, actually the muscle, the cells of the heart, the myocardial cells actually leak contents into the blood that you can detect. So we've known for a long time that the heart, or for as long, since the early days of COVID, I should say, that the heart is stressed by the illness. Now, that heart stress can be caused by a lot of things and not even direct effect on the heart. So inflammation and difficulty breathing and poor blood flow through the lungs can affect the heart, as a for instance, which happens with COVID. So the findings of myocarditis are more recent, and they're still somewhat controversial because it, they're really, most of what I understand, it's mostly looking at images of the heart through like an MRI scan or something like that and saying that looks like it probably is inflammation, but actually not proven. So there's still a lot to know whether page, how frequently patients with COVID actually get myocarditis. I think what was of concern, though, to the Big Ten and to other, the, the Pac-12 is another one for sure. There's other conferences that have deferred or canceled fall sports. I think the concern is that in younger individuals, that if there is an effect of the virus on the heart, could there be long-term uh, you know, damage to the heart if they play? Uh, the biggest concern, of course, would be that that patient would actually, or an individual might actually have a, you know, a cardiac arrest. 
Do you feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what we need to know on this virus and the potential finish line of a vaccine? Well, I wouldn't say we barely scratched the surface. Uh, You know, on the one hand, I would say it's pretty astronomical, the amount of information that we have now about COVID-19 than we did when we first knew the virus was going to be on our own shores here in, you know, February, March of this year. So we've learned more in the first six months of dealing with this disease than we learned probably in the first 10 years of managing HIV or, or hepatitis C. That being said, the disease is still new. And so there's still a lot that we have to learn and we're learning it almost on a day-by-day basis. And of course, this is also pretty typical of medicine that we learn things in kind of pieces and we put together the puzzle. It's just that everyone is affected by COVID either directly or indirectly. So we're all kind of watching this happen in real time, which makes it seem uh, like there's a lot of back and forth. But the reality is that we know more, most importantly, and not enough to be definitive about certain things, but more than we knew six months ago, to be sure. He's president of Mayo Clinic Labs, chair of lab medicine and pathology at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Bill Maurice joining us beyond the mic. Now, while the Pac-12 followed the Big Ten and MAC in canceling their fall seasons, Big 12, SEC, and ACC are not because their experts are seeing something different. Now, what's the major difference that one set of doctors are seeing that they're not concerned about, while others are concerned about. It, in some respects, it's not surprising. Just That's why a lot of people, when they get an opinion from a doctor on something serious, might go for a second opinion, because medicine is ultimately, you know, it's an art and a science both. And so there's different doctors that will look at the same information and, and draw somewhat different conclusions. I think in this case, what we still really don't know are what's really the risk of the, going back to the question of myocarditis or or strain of the heart, what is really the risk of someone having what we would call sudden cardiac death? I think, uh, you know, we think back to those of us who are a little older, Hank Gathers, uh, when he played for Loyola Marymount and had an arrhythmic death. You know, that's, I think that's the the image that people, of course, that was totally different. That was an an, an inborn error in the heart. But I think that's the image that some people have in their mind that, that they just don't want to risk that. And that's understandable. One event like that on a, you know, would change the landscape of college sports, literally. But the flip side is there's not great evidence that, that, is, that the risk of that is real high. So uh, you know, I think that's really what we're seeing is there's still a lot that we don't know. The two things we don't really know are how risky is it for these athletes to play if they have a low level of COVID? And also, what are the long-term, are there long-term health risks from COVID? Because I think that's the other thing, particularly for athletes, is if there is some even just strain of the heart, would there be some kind of decrease in performance either, you know, for a year or so that might affect their ability to to go pro or get drafted or worse yet would be lifelong. So I think that's why uh, there's some things that we just don't really know. And doctors tend to look at, you know, same set of doctors can look at the same set of information or different sets of doctors can look at the same set of information and draw slightly different conclusions. And that's really uh, what we're seeing here. And it, there's that part of it. And then there's the actual conferences and what is their risk tolerance. You know, so if they have a really a, a very, very low risk tolerance, then they're going to be very conservative. Whereas if they're a little bit more risk tolerant, um, they might be a little less conservative. So I think that's why we see this difference of opinion across the different college athletic leagues in the country. North Carolina moved all classes online after a breakout of students infected with COVID-19. 
Do you feel the the risks of catching COVID-19 are mitigated with just athletes on campus? Um, Certainly having just athletes on campus will help. I mean, we know this already from a lot of different social experiments that they get the most corollary would be like the NHL and the NBA, where they actually had the players isolated. They had them isolated in control environments, so-called bubbles. It really is for these athletes, the biggest risk is going to be catching the, the virus not when they're in the facilities, but actually when they're outside of the facilities on campus. If there's fewer individuals on campus, there are fewer chances of them coming in contact with someone who's COVID positive. So that will help, but it won't reduce it to zero because, look, even just coming out of the social lockdowns and the the social isolation that we had in the spring, we found out that as people start to get together, there is risk of COVID spreading. So it will decrease it, but it won't drive it to zero. Large cities first, then factories, warehouses, building sites were next, followed by nursing homes. Now fraternity and sorority houses have become hot spots for the virus. How do you balance the economic damage closing down the country with over 160,000 friends, family members, and loved ones who have passed? Well, I think that's the question for all of us, right? Uh, You know, there is no doubt that just the measures that we are taking to try and prevent the spread of COVID are causing great hardship for people and business owners, small business owners, uh, universities, you know, restaurant industry, the hotel industry, a lot of people's jobs and livelihood is at stake here. And yet the flip side of that is if someone loses a loved one to COVID, they're going to be, that in and of itself can have a devastating effect or if someone gets really sick with COVID and they're out of work for a protracted period of time, I don't know. And that's why we kind of see the dialogue going back and forth. And it's not just in this country. Uh, you know, there's now reports of increased cases in Europe again and other parts of the globe. I don't know that anyone's, quote, gotten it right, close quote. I think we know that the economic consequences of what we're doing to try and prevent the spread are not sustainable. And that that's really why there's such a great rush to find ways to either contain the spread through masking and other things, and more importantly, either to prevent with a vaccine or to treat with things like convalescent plasma. Let's talk about convalescent plasma. Now, what success has been shown in its use? Well, it's really it's interesting because most often when we want to see if any therapy, a drug or convalescent plasma in this case, really helps individuals, called a case control study in medicine, meaning that you have a group of people that have an illness or a condition, and you randomly have some get treatment and some get uh, you know, a placebo or not treated. And then you can see if there's a big difference. Now, what's, with COVID being what it is and the need to get people treated and try and maintain, manage the pandemic, with convalescent plasma, what Mayo helped to lead was an expanded access program. So that was basically saying... Look, we know this therapy has been effective in other viral illnesses. Let's just try and make it available and see if we if it's safe to give people. That was really the purpose. The original design of that program was to get 5,000 people treated to see if it was safe. There's been such a demand. I think last I saw, there was over 70,000 that had donated and a significant number, tens of thousands, that had gotten the treatment. It's a little more tough to tell because we didn't design it the way that I described earlier. But what we are seeing is that there is definitely a benefit to, in terms of people who are really sick with COVID, that they get better quicker or they have less mortality. So the numbers are just coming out. And the next question will be, 
actually can we use things like convalescent plasma to keep people from getting sick? Because the other thing with those programs, whether it's remdesivir, the drug, or convalescent plasma, is in the early days, we really tried to see the, the help patients who were really sick, knowing that they were at risk of dying. But what we really hope is that we can now look in patients who are less sick, now that we know that, that these things are safe, and see if we can really prevent people from getting ill. The FDA approved a COVID testing system called Saliva Direct. Now, with a 90% effective testing rate, is that high enough percent to limit the spread without too many false positives? Well, the challenge with the saliva, it's, it's, first of all, it's, a, it's great work. It was by a group at Yale with collaborating in part with the MBA. It really is a big step forward in that it makes the testing uh, easier to do, in part because it's saliva, which is easier to collect. And there's other things about how the test is, operates that make it a little bit more straightforward for labs do it. The challenge actually is not so much in the false positives, but the concern is more in the false negatives. It's still it's very good, but it's not accurate in terms of picking up who has COVID, not quite as accurate as the nasal pharyngeal swab. So, uh, you know, the offset of that, of course, is that hopefully it will be much more widely available. But that's what we'll have to figure out is it's not performed quite as well. And I think that's why it, even the people who have developed it are saying they really want this to be more of a screening tool not to replace the more sensitive tests that we've been using here for the first five or six months, but to help screen more individuals to see if they need testing, further testing. So it shows promise. We'll have to see how it rolls out, and but it certainly, and we'll see a lot more. I think this is the first of many sorts of COVID tests that we're going to see come out in the next, you know, three to four months that with the aim of making the testing much more widely available. President of Mayo Clinic Labs, Chair of Lab Medicine and Pathology at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Bill Maurice joins us beyond the mic. With so many researchers trying to find a vaccine, is there a fear of rushing being first rather than being right? Um, you know, there's a, of course, that's another hotly debated topic uh, is how are we going to prove that these vaccines are both effective and safe? Uh, again, for I mean, vaccine development typically is a process that takes years, not months. So that is the concern, right? Is that will the early vaccines really be safe and effective? Uh, I can tell you that that the way that the uh, pharmaceutical industry, as well globally, as well as the healthcare community globally, are coming together to try and answer those questions is really remarkable. I do think that the early vaccines will will be safe, and I. I'm confident they, they will have some effect. What we'll need to understand, though, is, you know, how effective are they? Will it take one shot or more than one shot? How often would someone have to be revaccinated? There's a lot of unknowns. The thing is that we can't just wait for the vaccine because we don't know exactly how successful it will be. That's why we need to continue to work on other therapies, continue to work on containing the virus, just because as as alluring as it is to think that a vaccine is just going to help make this go away, the reality is we're going to be managing COVID-19 for at least the next 12 months or so. Have we gotten to a world that have gotten complacent about viruses? The warning signs about an easily transmittable virus have been seen. We've seen HIV, Ebola, SARS, MERS. Should we have been better prepared? The short answer is we've we could have been better prepared globally, and I don't mean to make that a political statement. I think that you're right. I think overall, we did have some near misses, and unfortunately, as is human nature, we didn't probably heed those warnings to the extent that we could have. Uh, you mentioned SARS and MERS are probably the two closest 
because those were both also coronaviruses. They both started in animals. I had the mirrors, I think it was in the camel. Uh, the first SARS, I think, was also possibly a bat or civic cat. That I believe is what it was. But basically, so very similar. The, the main difference, twofold. One, they were actually more lethal. So more people that got those viruses actually died from the virus. But the flip side is people weren't apt to spread them until they were really sick. So it was easier to tell who had it and contain them and keep the, the virus from spreading. And to your point, I think that probably made us feel overconfident that we can manage these because SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 is different in that even though it's less lethal, it's a lot more lethal than any other commonly spread respiratory virus. And unlike SARS-1 and, and MERS, you're most likely to spread it when you don't know you have it and it's very easily spread. So I think that that is the dialogue that's happening in the healthcare community right now. Um, I'm involved in efforts both nationally and also with the World Economic Forum internationally to think about how can we be better prepared for this because, you know, as, as hard as it is to think about even getting through this, the reality is this is the third time this has happened in the last 20 years. So we, we have to be more prepared for the if and when this happens again. So I after this, I don't think we'll be complacent with the economic damage that this has caused and the disruption of, the, of basically the world and everyone's lives, um, we need to get through it first. But I think, you know, and it's always easy in retrospect to say things could have been done better. But I, one of the goals of the healthcare community globally is not just solve this problem, but to solve it in a way that we solve the problem when it arises again. Could you please talk about the great people you work with at the Mayo Clinic? Yeah, no, I mean, I've been here since 1987. So, I, you know, as you mentioned at the top, top, I went to medical school here and did my PhD here. Uh, as I tell people, I'm homeogenized. I'm completely homogenous Mayo, but it's and part of that is because it, it is a very, it's a nonprofit organization. It's really predicated on teamwork. You know, it was started actually in Rochester in response to a local disaster, uh, a tornado, and that left the community devastated. And the need to care for those individuals was really the inspiration behind starting the Mayo Clinic. And so, it's been very gratifying to work at a place that has such a collection of really outstanding people, and that's not just doctors at all, but the nurses, the allied health staff, the people we have working in our labs. I mean, the great testament to that is we found out about SARS here in early February. We decided that we needed to have our own test at Mayo for when it hit our patients, Uh, not knowing if the the CDC was going to let us even run our own test. We had basically people coming, working nights and weekends, and we got a test developed. Typically, it takes nine months to a year. In three weeks, they had a test developed to be ready. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, 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 uh, it's inspirational to work around such wonderful people. And our inspiration collectively is the hope that our little hospital, not so little anymore, in the small town of Rochester, Minnesota, and now in Florida and Arizona, can really not just help our communities, but our country. It's, uh, it's a humbling place to work because there's so many great people uh, that are so selfless, and it's really driven by teamwork. And hopefully that's what people that aren't here or don't have the opportunity to come can feel that we're, we're working as a team to do whatever we can to help. Tom's running out, so it's time for the Rockin' Eight. Eight random questions. Just answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Okay. Other than riding your bike and fighting forest fires, what do you do for fun? <laughs> um, I, I'm an exercise nut. I'm a, I'm a hyperactive guy that somehow managed to get a desk job. <laughs> So what I do for fun is I work out a lot with my 
particularly with my sons and my and my daughter. We run together, and I'm also a big sports fan, so I tend to watch a lot of sports on uh, both pro and college. Okay, if you played baseball, what would be your walk-up song? <laughs> well, I have to think about that one. Uh, it would probably be something from U2. I'm a big U2 fan. Uh, maybe a beautiful day. Be kind of it would be positive. Tough choice here. Do you like cake or pie? Probably more of a cake guy, but I like both. Do you sing in the shower? Nah, not so much actually. But I sing when I'm riding my bike, which drives people crazy. Do you remember the first sporting event that you attended, and what was the last one? Ooh, the first sporting event I attended live was a Mets game at Shea Stadium because I was actually born on Long Island. The last sporting event I attended was a Minnesota Wild game here you know, right before they had the closure for COVID. So I want to put you to the test. Which of the Minnesota hockey teams were your favorite, the Wild or the North Stars? The Wild. So I wasn't a big hockey fan when I moved here, so they left before I really caught the bug. But uh, and now I've been going to Wild games since they started in 2000. What's one thing that people do not know about you? One thing that people do I've gosh, I feel like people know just about everything. I guess the one thing is I actually like quiet time and enjoy reading, particularly about history. I'm a big, big history buff. What's the name of the doctor, patient, or intern that helped kick you to being the doctor you are today? Uh, probably a guy by the name of Dr. Bill Carnes, who was a neurologist he, here at Mayo Clinic, one of my first teachers who bought me under his wing and talked to me all about what it was that now in the mid to late 80s, talked to me about what it was, what it meant to be a doctor at Mayo Clinic. He's president of Mayo Clinic Labs and chair of lab science and pathology at the Mayo Clinic. My thanks to Dr. Bill Maurice for your time. Oh, my pleasure to join you. Thank you for the opportunity. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.